0: Well, we begin our Advent series, or pre-Advent series, uh, on the Book of Ruth. Again, a very familiar book to many of us. Uh, In many ways, it's just simply a lovely book. Uh, It is short. uh, It is well-written. It has a wonderful plot to it that seems incredibly modern. It seems almost too easy that one could make a movie out of it. And so we come now, though, to see... Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ, as you may know, the ending of the book of Ruth is a genealogy ending with David the king. And so we'll take a look at the first part of chapter 1 to verse 18. Uh, So hear these words from Holy Scripture. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So as we come to the beginning of Ruth, I think one of the themes that seems prominent to me is the way in which bad decisions end up in bad situations. Yet that's the beginning of the story, not the end of it. To me, there's incredible encouragement here that the Lord has not left or abandoned his people, especially when they make stupid decisions. Because as we'll see here, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, seems to be incredibly disobedient to what he should be doing. And Naomi seems to follow suit after that. And really, at the beginning of chapter one, the person that appears to be the most righteous is actually a foreigner, a Moabite. And so, as we look at this this evening, we'll see the ways in which Elimelech has disobeyed the Lord, the way in which Naomi seems to have her mindset on the earthly benefits or the earthly problems, which are great. But from that kind of local view of things, she fails to take account of more eternal things. And then finally to see the ways in which this Moabite, who uh, clings to Naomi at the end of the book, is worth more than seven sons. To have all of these sons, Ruth is worth far, far more. And what we see in Ruth is simply her love of the Lord And for that, she clings to Naomi. Well, in the first five verses, we are given the setup or the setting of when this takes place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. If you've read through the book of Judges at any time, you'll know the common refrain is that there was no king and thus everyone did what was evil or what was right in their own eyes. There was no law and so they acted however they wanted to act. And I used to think of that, there was no king in Israel at that time, that it was foreshadowing and looking forward to the time in which the earthly monarchy would reign. But really what I think Judges is getting at is that during this tumultual time, not even Yahweh was king over his people. Because during this time, if everyone is doing what they think is right instead of what God says is right, clearly God is not their king. And actually, if you fast forward, for when the monarchy arises, most of the kings inevitably cause more trouble for Israel. And so in the book of Judges, I think what we're seeing here is that not even Yahweh is king over his people. They have abandoned him, and they have become self-centered people. And we see that worked out in Ruth chapter 1. First, there is judgment that has fallen upon the entire land of Israel, a famine In the land, as we read from Deuteronomy 28 earlier, that a famine in the land was divine punishment for their sins. And again, reading through the book of Judges, it is easy to see the ways in which Israel completely or consistently and continually sins against God by going after idols. And then they find that they've gone after idols. They then are oppressed by foreign nations. And then they cry out to the Lord and the Lord in his graciousness saves them only for this cycle to continually repeat through the book of Judges. So there's a famine in the land, and there's a man from Bethlehem in Judea who goes and plans to sojourn in the country of Moab. Again, a a theme that we see in the book of Genesis, where a famine in the land causes some of the patriarchs to head on down to Egypt, and sometimes with disastrous consequences. And so here the Lord is judging his people. And again, he's judging his people not to be vindictive, is he? He's judging in order that they would turn from their idolatry and turn to him. This was a corrective punishment. That was the point of the covenant curses, in order that they might be corrected, just as we would correct a a small child, and that they would then come back to the Lord in worship. And yet, during this time, Elimelech from the city of bread, which is what Bethlehem means, it has no bread, it's famine throughout the land, and he decides to sojourn and to leave the country of Israel and sojourn in Moab. If you remember your history at all, Moab is this country that uh, it, it it sits as one of Israel's greatest enemies when they were trying to enter the Promised Land, and even their own history is rife with various difficulties. They came from Lot in his incestuous relationship with his daughters, and they were those who persecuted the people of Israel as they tried to enter the promised land, and so much so that God pronounces a curse on the Moabites that they are themselves not allowed to enter the covenant community. And so in many ways, out of all the places that one could pick to sojourn outside of Israel, Moab should be pretty far down the list of places to go. Yet this man, whose name means El is king, a does what is right in his own eyes, and he sets off outside of Israel, the place of God's protection and blessing, when God is disciplining his people, and he heads off into a foreign nation that has a multitude of, of problems with it, in order that he might hope to find Life, Right? When the famine hits, they're running low on food. The the thought of death is is around them. And so they seek out in search of life. Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons. And it says that they were Ephrathites from the, the clan of the Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. And here already, if you know your biblical history, this sounds exactly like David. David is... A Bethlehemite, David is from Bethlehem. And here this picture is already being painted that David is at the forefront here of this story. And so they continue into the country of Moab, planning likely to stay only a short period of time until the famine is over. Yet, verse 3 says, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Right? There's this bitter irony there that they left the people of God to sojourn in this foreign country to find life and bread and food. And what did they find? Death. They find death. And Naomi now, she left Israel with a husband and two sons. Now she has no husband and two sons. Then it seems to compound. Their sin, not only have they left the covenant community, but in verse 4, they took Moabite wives, Orpah and Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And you'll notice in verse 4 that they were married. The sons were married to these two women. They lived for 10 years, but there's something that's very much missing in these marriages, and that's children. There are no children born to them. Many commentators likely say this is yet another punishment or judgment placed upon them for marrying outside the covenant community. The Old Testament seems replete with examples and warnings about Israelites marrying outside of the covenant community. Not that Israel was this racist uh, community, but rather they were the ones who worshipped the true God, and those outside of Israel are, were those who worshipped idols. And so when these marriages took place, it was often not that the foreigners became worshippers of God, but that those who worshipped the true God began to worship idols. And you see this in the life of Solomon. The wisest man who ever lived, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, is easily swayed with his many wives to worship idols. You could say that one man who absolutely should have known better was torn down by this love of idols. And so verse five then says, and both Melon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Right, she fled from Bethlehem and Judah because there was a famine in the land. And as you'll see later, she left full with her whole family in tow. And now she finds herself in a foreign country Empty and bereft. And she'll say later that the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And certainly we empathize with her plight for someone to go through such a situation like this of losing their husband and losing their children is not something you immediately walk into and say the judgment of God is upon you. And so there is a sense where we come to this and a sense of grief of reading the story, of feeling what she is feeling right now, and understanding that she has lost those around her, even if she has done so, or this has happened, precisely because of disobedience. And so then we see Naomi in verse 6, where they look to go back to the country of Jerusalem. They've heard in the field of Moab that the Lord has visited his people and has given given them food. So the Lord has relented from his disaster upon the people of Judah, the people of Israel. And that food now is is abundant. And so they set off, she with her two daughters-in-law, to return to the land of Judah. But in verse 8 there becomes this complicated part as it almost seems as if they're walking on their way to Jerusalem where Naomi stops for a moment and then considers the plight of her two daughters-in-law. And she tells them that they are to go back to their mother's household and to eventually find a husband. And she asks that the Lord would bless them, and deal kindly with them, as she has dealt with the dead and with her. As the two daughters-in-law are still with Naomi, there is a sense where they have dealt very well with the dead. They have honored their deceased husbands. They have continued to be with their mother-in-law. They have stood by her during this very difficult season. And I do think Naomi is seeking ways in which to care for these women. These women who are like daughters to her. And so she wants to see that they are taken care of. And as she goes on to explain the, 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 the stark reality of the situation she finds herself in. It's one in which she has really no economic safety net. She has really, in a a, a patriarchal setting that she finds herself in, without a husband and without sons, she really has nothing. She's a sojourner in a foreign country now heading back to her ancestral land, but her prospects are pretty bleak and pretty grim. And then she has her two daughters-in-law here who are young enough, unlike her, where they could be remarried. And they could find husbands and they could live, in a sense, happily ever after. And so she tells them, please, just go back to your mother's house. There is really nothing more that I can do for you. There's nothing more that I can do for you. And they insist that, no, they will stay with her. They lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, "'No, we will return with you to your people.'" And so these two Moabites want to stick close to Naomi. They want to hold on. They want to be with her. And Naomi then, in verse 11, she then goes on to just explain the prospects for them. This practice, which she seems to be referring to as leverant marriage, that if she were to have another son— that then they would be able to marry this child. But she puts it in very stark terms, that even if I had a husband this night and I were to give birth to a son, would you wait around the 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years until you could have this child? Would you wait around that long while I have no prospects and no way to provide for you? She said, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so they lift up their voices and they wept once more. And at this instant, says one of the daughters in law reflects upon these prospects. She leaves. Orpah kissed her mother in law and she goes home. But Ruth clung to her. In verse 15, Naomi then turns to Ruth and says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And so Naomi, looking at Ruth, says, Please do the same. There is nothing for you if you follow me. There does seem to be this great love between all three of them. And Naomi, I do believe, as she seeks to do through the rest of the book of Ruth, to seek the best for Ruth. But I think the problem that is arising, the problem that started with Elimelech, where he was focused on doing what he wanted to do, and his viewpoint, as it were, were one in which it was set only upon the earthly situation. He saw a famine running through the land, and his first response to that famine was not the Lord is chastising his people. I should repent of my sins and seek Israel to repent of their sins, but it was rather to flee to another country in order that his family might be provided for in an earthly setting. And it is easy reading this to think of what we would do in a similar situation. To judge Elimelech harshly, but to say if there was a famine in the land and there was food over here, which of us as Fathers would not seek to save our family. But yet, nonetheless, he left the covenant people, he left the covenant promises of the Lord, and he found not life, but death. And there seems to be the similar way in which Naomi is looking at the situation. She is looking at it completely from an earthly perspective. She's looking at this going, I have no resources. I have no prospects. I have no ability to care for you. That in the earthly realm of, of, of this situation, there is no hope. And as such, please go back to your people. But note the way she says this your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. I think it's there in that line, and to her gods, that really should have us in a sense, weeping at what has taken place here. That Orpah, who was united to an Israelite, however disobedient they were, would have still known about Yahweh, the, the true God, the one who provides for his people, the one who fatherly, in a fatherly capacity judges his people, the one who cares for his people, that this was the God that this family worshiped. And yet here Orpah has now departed from the Lord and has gone back to her family and to her gods, her false idols that cannot save her, that cannot help her, that in fact aren't real. And that is going to be her life from now on. She has departed from this wonderful hope that even though it's concealed now, she will go off, to dwell in a land of darkness. But again, it's easy to read this in the abstract and think, what would we do in a similar situation? When we truly think of the value of the gospel, are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to die for the gospel? Is our, our view of the gospel such that it is all-consuming, that even when everything around us seems to be falling apart, we would rather seek after the Lord Jesus Christ? Whatever earthly things may befall us. And I have to admit that that is not usually my first priority when things begin to go wrong, when they go from bad to worse. It is usually not to fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to thank Him for what He has done, but rather usually to just complain. To look at my earthly situation as if it's the only thing that matters. That's what Elimelech was doing, and that's what Naomi is doing now. And if we're honest with ourselves, that is generally what we do, isn't it? Because the earthly situation that we find ourselves in is the time in which things seem the most difficult. And yet here, as we'll see throughout the book of Ruth, is what is happening behind the scenes. The book of Ruth, in many ways, has a lot of similarities with the book of Esther. That God doesn't have these mighty acts that he does like the book of Exodus. There's no great theophanies, there's no great uh, oceans parting, there's no great fire raining down from heaven. It's actually just ordinary people existing in ordinary times and the Lord is in the background of all of this orchestrating all of these things in order that ultimately his people would prosper that the line of David would be secured and that the Lord Jesus Christ would ultimately come but i think that's what makes ruth such a fascinating book is the way in which it's very normal it is the way in which our lives are normally carried out we don't see miraculous interventions of god all the time we see the ordinary ways in which the Lord helps us and is with us and guides us. Well, in verse 16, we have this fascinating response from a foreigner. Thus far, we've had Israelites who know not only God, they know his covenant blessings and his covenant curses. And we have this Moabite who by all accounts should have gone back to her people and to her gods. Yet Ruth now says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following me. For I will go, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. She will stick by Ruth, she will stick by Naomi till the end. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. She makes this what's called a maledictory oath. She basically says, God, punish me if I don't fulfill this oath that I'm making to you. That I will cleave to you. I will never leave you. And I will go so far as to your people will now become my people. Your God, my God. That I will be with you and where where you die and are buried, there I will be. It seems that at this moment ruth becomes a believer though obviously the lord had been working in her life and the spirit had been working in her heart but there has to be something more that ruth sees because as much as ruth loves naomi she has to know that her prospects are pretty grim that what she's signing up for is a very difficult life there's no way that ruth at this moment can anticipate boaz and all the blessings that would follow and to me the only option there has to be that ruth knows the true god of israel that she has been changed from the inside out that she knows to cling to god is worth more than the uncertainties that she's signing up for. In some older manuscripts of the Bible, the book of Ruth doesn't actually come after the book of Judges. Some, when they were compiling the Old Testament, thought that Ruth should actually come after the book of Proverbs. So you'd have Proverbs 31, this exemplary woman, and immediately following that, you would fall into the book of Ruth. And again, as you read through the book of Ruth, it is hard not to look at her and to say she is indeed, as Boaz says, a worthy woman. She is someone who does her duty. She is someone who trusts in the Lord in the most difficult of circumstances, and she seeks to live a faithful life through everything that she does. She is this exemplar of the faith. She is this worthy woman who trusts In the Lord, in incredibly difficult circumstances. And ultimately, she is most remembered as the great grandmother of David. And so much so, she makes it into Matthew's genealogy. She is the great, 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 etc., grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. She is in the line of the Messiah. She is used by God to further and to protect this messianic seed. And so this evening, as we conclude, I think what we see in this section is we see the rather stupidity of sin. We see the ways in which people make poor choices, abandoning the covenant community, disobeying God's law, and and really wandering their way into potential idolatry and further excommunicating themselves. Every step of the way, it seems as if they just keep making the wrong choice. And yet the book of Ruth shows us a God who is steadfast, a God who protects, and a God who sends to Naomi a Moabite. A Moabite that almost seems to be teaching Naomi about the God that she worships. And so as we go through the book of Ruth, to be seeing the ways in which God has brought mercy out of very unexpected, very difficult circumstances. I think ultimately Ruth points to that and brings us face to face with the fact that God gives us not what we deserve, but he gives us tremendous mercy and grace. That's the gospel in a nutshell. We deserve wrath, yet we get forgiveness. We deserve to be excommunicated and cast off, yet we become sons. Naomi, through the book of Ruth, she is restored, and Ruth finds this wonderful husband in Boaz and is used by the Lord in the preservation of the seed of the Messiah. And so there's great encouragement in the book of Ruth. It's certainly not an excuse to sin, but a reason to come back. To the lord jesus christ as naomi returns to jerusalem sir paul this evening is to return to the lord for his mercy is never ending his steadfast love endures forever let us pray